Welcome to Briefly, a podcast by the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we are discussing ways the law can and does address the opioid crisis, something that has claimed myriad lives and devastated communities and families across America. My name is Chris Hurley, and I'm an online editor. My name is Jeremy Rosansky, and I'm an online editor. I'm Megan Kogashal. I'm an online editor for the University of Chicago Law Review. We've interviewed Keith Humphreys, Esther Ting Memorial Professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, who served in the Bush and Obama administrations, Lindsay LaSalle of the Drug Policy Alliance, and Abby Gluck, Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy at Yale Law School. This podcast will be a two-part show. Ms. LaSalle will be on part one, and Professor Gluck will be on part two. Professor Humphreys will contribute to both podcasts. We began with the physiology before moving to policy. We want to understand how these affect human beings before analyzing the ways in which the opioid crisis can be addressed on a mass scale. I talked to Professor Humphreys and began with the basics. What are opioids? Opioids are the descendant of one of the oldest plants that has been used in, in medicine. If you cut the bulb of the plant, you get a, an emulsion that comes out, which is raw opium. That is the font of everything that follows. People take it uh, because it feels good. There's usually euphoria associated with it. It's also analgesia, meaning it, re- it relieves pain. Its third effect is that it's uh, soporific, meaning it makes people tired, it makes them sleepier, and critically, it slows down their breathing. And this is the mechanism by which opioids can kill us by depriving the brain and the body of oxygen. Over the thousands of years since we discovered that plant, it got raw opium. We've learned how to refine it in different ways and you know, make uh, pure drugs like morphine. And then even more recently, uh, now in a world of DNA sequencing and modern chemistry, there are opioids that are entirely synthetic, methadone, fentanyl, which share some of the molecular structure of what comes out of the plant but are entirely created in the laboratory and can be, as in the case of fentanyl, extraordinarily potent. Opioids are an ancient drug. The crisis we have is is a distinctly modern crisis. It's about as severe a drug crisis as we've ever had. The opioid epidemic we're having now is the worst opioid epidemic we've had in the history of the United States. There was a heroin problem in the 60s and 70s, and then if you go back a long time, uh, end of the 19th century, there was a big problem with the, the hypodermic needle. Was But those are really minor epidemics compared to the current one, which claims more lives each year than AIDS did in its worst. We're over 50,000 deaths a year just from opioids. Uh, and it's worth noting that official numbers tend to understate the number of deaths because not all coroners actually test overdose. You want to compare it to epidemics for anything, it's the worst we've had since the 50s, the flu epidemics, the 50s, in terms of the number of people who are dying. So just on mortality, this is more than a generational challenge. It's the worst thing the U.S. public health system has faced in 60 years at least. In addition to the people who die, of course, there's also millions of people who are addicted, upon whom we have actually pretty poor data. Um, because a lot of the government systems that used to gather data on that have been cut back in uh, recent years. But we certainly know it's in the millions, and that includes people who are addicted to what their doctor has prescribed to them. It includes people who are addicted to what doctors have prescribed other patients. So in other words, they're being, uh, maybe they're stealing pills out of the medicine cabinet, or they're being supplied by someone who sells a little bit of their medication uh, to make some extra money. 
And then there are people who are entirely in the illicit market, which bounced back um, when once there were millions of Americans addicted to prescription opioids, entrepreneurial uh, gangs uh, in, in Mexico realized this was a chance to expand their heroin business, and they did so, and many people switched over and are in that market, uh, which uh, is supplied mostly from Mexico, some from China, and in the last few years has seen an infiltration of the synthetic opioid fentanyl. That's made heroin even deadlier than it was before. It's lethal. It's affecting the inner cities as much as it's affecting Appalachia. It's an epidemic that doesn't discriminate. The opioid epidemic is much more democratic uh, than most of the, the epidemics we've had in the past. Methamphetamine in the 90s, which was heavily concentrated among rural white populations, or crack cocaine in the 80s, concentrated among African-American urban populations. The heroin epidemics of the 60s and 70s were also urban. This you know, started in rural America, started where I'm from, Appalachia, but has uh, infiltrated through the entire country. The rate at which people misuse prescription opiates, for example, is virtually identical in rural areas, suburbs, and in cities. The racial composition of the epidemic is roughly comparable to the composition of the United States, rather than being concentrated in one group. Legal institutions are trying to address the opioid crisis at many levels. Federal drug enforcement is trying to stop the shipment of drugs. Congress is considering regulatory changes. And prosecutors are making use of a unique type of charge, drug-induced homicide. I spoke with Lindsay LaSalle of the Drug Policy Alliance. Drug-induced homicide are specific statutes, criminal offenses in about 20 states that make it an offense to supply a controlled substance that results in an accidental overdose death. The penalties are generally equivalent to murder or manslaughter. The sentence ranges anywhere from a couple years um, to life in prison and um, some states even the possibility of the death penalty. But even states that don't have those specific drug-induced homicide statutes are still able to bring similar charges under their generic murder or manslaughter offenses. In the states that do have the drug-induced homicide statutes, prosecutors typically are using those statutes. Oftentimes, they do allow for higher sentences. And I think it also is just a signal to prosecutors and to the community that these um, types of charges are appropriate, as opposed to states that just have the generic murder or manslaughter offenses on the book and then have to create a case and kind of shoehorn it into those offenses. And they all, you know, murder, manslaughter, and drug-induced homicide across the states vary um, in what is actually required to prove it. So, for instance, some drug-induced homicide statutes are essentially a strict liability crime, um, you know, where intent doesn't matter. In other states, you do actually have to prove some level of intent, and in particular causation, proving that the drug that was supplied was the actual cause of death. So they really, you know, the, the standards vary across states pretty widely. Despite the fact that these laws have been on the books for several decades, their use has really ramped up in the last five to 10 years as the opioid crisis has really expanded and gotten so much worse. For the states that do have specific drug-induced homicide laws on the books, most of those were enacted in the 1980s, kind of at the height of the war on drugs, but really have sat relatively stagnant. As we've seen overdose deaths continue to increase, we have seen a correlating increase in these types of prosecutions. Now, overdose deaths are not evenly distributed across the country. The places that really are the hardest hit are the Midwest, Appalachia, and the Northeast. That is where you will also find the most robust use of these types of charges. 
across the United States, we used media mentions as a proxy for um, charges. Unfortunately, prosecuting offices, law enforcement agencies really are not tracking these types of cases with any consistency uh, because many states are just manslaughter charges. There's no way to distinguish a drug-induced homicide from any other type of manslaughter. So it's a very imperfect proxy, but I think one that very clearly illustrates the trend and is certainly undercounting. Even though we're talking about media mentions of specific charges against an individual, those are only ones that actually make it into the media stream. But with that said, we saw a 225% increase across the states from 2011 to 2016. Some of the increases in the individual states are incredibly stark. You know, we're talking about over a thousand percent increase in just those five short years. The thing I thought was most interesting about the effects of these laws is that they're they were designed to affect drug kingpins um, and and to go after the networks. Um, you know, in the, in the opioid crisis, a lot of the supply is coming through legal sources, but some is also coming from illegal sources, or or people start on legal sources and they move to illegal sources um, after a pill mill gets shut down or something like that. And and the reality is that prosecutors are having trouble getting far up that chain, and and they're instead prosecuting friends, family, potential good Samaritans. Absolutely. What came out of this report in our conversation was that, as is the nature of criminal law, you have to show causation, and it's much harder to show causation for death the further you go up a particular drug supplier's cartel's chain. Um, If you have a low-level supplier, you can easily show that that particular drug dealt caused death. It's harder to show that the actions of someone much further away maybe down wherever these drugs are coming from, was the proximate cause, for lack of a you know more colloquial term, uh, to that death. The further away from the actual hand-to-hand exchange that you get, the more difficult it is to prove causation. Particularly now in the era of fentanyl and adulterated drug supply, it'd be very, very difficult to prove, for instance, that what was distributed at, at a high level and then maybe changed hands 10, 15 times was the same exact substance and was the proximate or but-for cause of a person's death. There's countless examples where police and prosecutors, even on the stand, will say, well, I can't, I can't possibly trace these all the way back to Mexico. We have statements, for instance, from the Chicago Police Department to this effect that these cases are often very difficult to prove. And so using resources on this on this tactic is likely going to be relatively fruitless. It kind of speaks to the nature of dealing. I'm putting up air quotes when I do that. But oftentimes you have addicts who are them dealing to support their own habit. These addicts or dealers aren't really strangers. They are family members, their friends, their parents, their children. It's a very different reality than what we sometimes think of as a typical drug dealer. What we're seeing are these prosecutions against family members and friends because of the difficulty of prosecuting further up the chain. So we profile... um, a couple of stories that, you know, bring that to light in a more human way, particularly, you know, sisters being prosecuted for brothers' death, children being prosecuted for their own parents' death, husbands and wives being prosecuted. It's not just state-level action. Many federal prosecutors' offices are actively involved in bringing these kinds of charges. So some federal prosecuting offices are much more involved than others. 
One thing that I think is particularly ominous about federal involvement is that often it will start as a state-level case, and it will begin with enforcement through one of these task forces. And often these task forces include federal agencies, um, even the U.S. Marshal's Office and some of them. You know, what the U.S. Marshal's Office has to do with it, it's, you know, beyond me. But um, they will start at that level, and then often they are transferred to the federal prosecutor in order to get an even higher sentence because the federal law go up to 25 years, and and um, many you know many times like in Illinois, for instance, the law allows for a lower sentence. So they will work with the prosecutors to the extent that they really want to get a maximum sentence. Okay, so so they're getting street dealers; they're not getting high level kingpins like they were supposed to, but. I mean, they're at least diverting people who are engaged in a pretty harmful practice into the legal system. So what's the downside? Aside from some of the trauma that this uh, courtroom battle can have on already pretty distressed families, the costs of these programs from the police investigations to prosecutors litigating these cases in court is enormous. It's really incredible. So looking at Hamilton County, Ohio, um, they have 10 full-time police officers in one small county dedicated to enforcing drug-induced homicide. And that's just the policing and investigation. That's not the actual prosecution, the court costs, the eventual incarceration costs. So just for those 10 officers, you're looking at at least $750,000 for a single county per year just on enforcement. And if we kind of try to put that in perspective, fentanyl drug checking strips are about a dollar a strip. That would be 750,000 drug checking strips in that single county. Maybe about 35,000 doses of naloxone. So how these resources are being misused um, and misplaced in this process is really egregious. We know it's expensive, but are we getting any bang for the buck? LaSalle thinks no, these sorts of prosecutions and whatever deterrent effect they theoretically have don't really play out. Deterrence in the criminal context is when potential criminals think about what they might face if they engage in illegal conduct. Particularly in the context we're discussing, we have people addicted to drugs and drug addiction really can fry a person's brain and make them act in ways they might not otherwise. Um, In this context, we have people who are really desperate and drugs drive them to do some pretty questionable things. I think that's really what the focus here is, is just on the desperation of many of these people. Criminal charges may not be enough to deter that level of desperation. Drug users probably have a high discount rate. Future consequences don't impact their present behavior. The prospect of potentially getting caught for a crime may not be at the forefront of your mind. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. I mean, the research is really clear that increased enforcement in terms of more arrests or more severe sentences doesn't have any deterrent effect. The other thing that is well established is a phenomenon called the replacement effect. So to the extent that um, a seller leaves the market uh, because they are incarcerated for drug-induced homicide or otherwise, the market responds. Someone else replaces them or people who are already in the market take a larger market share. I mean, it's pretty basic that supply follows demand and not the other way around. If you're not talking about ameliorating this, the demand, um, then you're always going to have people there to supply. Ms. LaSalle mentioned naloxone, which is called a miracle drug. It can revive a person experiencing an overdose. Professor Humphreys explains some of the challenges in meeting supply. So naloxone is what's called an opioid antagonist. 
And what that means is when you consume an opioid, whatever it is, heroin, Vicodin, whatever, it binds to a particular site in your brain called the mu receptor. And when you put naloxone in the body, it very quickly kicks that opioid out of it. Why would you want to do that? Well, if somebody had taken so many opioids that their breathing had stopped and they're going to die, naloxone will very quickly bring them back. It has reversed surely tens of thousands of overdoses since the epidemic has started as it's become more and more available. To be clear, it does not stop the person from being addicted. They're as addicted as ever, but at least they're not going to die. The challenges around pricing, I think, are partly market-based of just there's been increasing demand for naloxone. And so like anything else, when more and more people want it, the price goes up. There is some suspicion that some people are uh, gouging on the price, uh, taking advantage of the situation. I don't really know the details of that or whether or not that's uh, true, but that is a case where the federal government could certainly make a difference. One thing that uh, Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida, suggested is in a crisis, the government has the power to set aside certain regulations in order to respond. One of those, uh, the government shall not negotiate drug prices, which is in the bill that created Medicare Part D. What the governor said, and I agree with, is you know, you could say, look, this is a national crisis. We are going to negotiate. The government is a huge buyer of naloxone. The big uh, bills that have been passed, we're buying hundreds of millions of dollars. We can go to the pharma and say, we're not going to pay the standing price because we are going to pay much, much lower. And yes, normally the federal government doesn't do that, but this is an emergency. And that's a, an important legal debate to have, whether the opportunity to save lives you know, justifies waiving that rule during an epidemic. I think it does, but uh, you know, obviously other people disagree. LaSalle was concerned that drug-induced homicide laws will actually deter Good Samaritans from contacting the authorities who can administer naloxone. Fifty states now have laws that try to improve access to naloxone. Forty states in the District of Columbia have Good Samaritan laws. And Good Samaritan laws are actually the exact antithesis of drug-induced homicide laws. The goal of Good Samaritan laws is try to encourage people to call 911 in the event of an overdose. And if they do, then to provide them with limited immunity from, for instance, a possession charge. But you can imagine that even if you have immunity for a possession charge, if you understand that you can be charged with murder um, and potentially, you know, 25 years and up in many states, your impetus for calling 911 is, you know, declines, declines dramatically. You put people in this catch-22 situation where you're really damned if you do, damned if you don't. Humphreys called the opioid epidemic a, a democratic epidemic. But what about these drug-induced homicide laws? One thing that we haven't talked about that I think is really ominous in terms of prosecutorial discretion is potential racial disparities. So we weren't able to catalog this in any systematic way. So, you know, as of right now, it's primarily anecdotal and we we only have a few examples. But in McHenry County, Illinois, for instance, um, the population there is about 2% um, African-American. It's a primarily white county. They've had about 11 um, drug-induced homicide cases, and four of those have been against Black men from Chicago, which is in a neighboring county. Um, so this is about 35% of their prosecutions. And in particular, you know, we profile a man named James Linder, who sold very small amount of heroin um, to a man whose girlfriend was in the car. That man um, then shared the drugs with the girlfriend. Um, James had never met her. They go from Chicago uh, back home to McHenry County, stop on a few counties along the way. 
and she ends up dying of a drug overdose. He is prosecuted. He is brought into McHenry County. He's never set foot there in his life. Prosecuted by an all-white jury, sentenced to 28 years in federal prison, a sentence that is 55% higher than any other drug-induced homicide case in that county. And he is essentially going to serve, you know, the better part of his life in prison. Meanwhile, uh, the white boyfriend who actually bought the drugs and shared them with his girlfriend got probation. Of course, this is just one example, but I do think it's very indicative of some of the trends. In Hennepin County, uh, Minnesota, about 13% Black population, 72% of the prosecutions have been against people of color. While LaSalle brought up a number of anecdotes, I think it's important to remember that the data in this field is really difficult to find. And that's one thing that came up in our conversations is just the difficulty that the Drug Policy Alliance sometimes has of collecting data on these criminal prosecutions nationally. Is that because in a lot of cases, these charges are brought to maybe force pleas or or a lot happens off book? Or is it just that it's not collected anywhere? There is no national database uh, for collecting these sorts of prosecutions, and we don't know when they will be dropped in the course of prosecutioning, maybe in exchange for a plea, as you just referenced. Another criminal law innovation tried in some states are drug courts, which use the lever of potential prosecution to move people into treatment and, and try and break addiction. I asked Humphreys about drug courts and whether he thinks they're effective. Yeah. Drug courts properly done can definitely be helpful to people in multiple ways. One is by, you know, diverting them from the prison system. Of course, prison is expensive for all of us to pay for, difficult for the person, and also pretty risky. Quite a few people overdose uh, uh, when they come out of prison because they, they've lost their tolerance to the opioids. Uh, you know, the stereotype is it's very easy to get heroin in prison. It's actually challenging to get it in prison. So most people are not able to maintain their heroin use in prison. And so it's better if we can keep them out of there so they don't then drop tolerance and then overdose the day they the day they leave. A drug court maintains someone in the community, monitors them closely, uh, and uh, you know can be very, very effective. There are some ideological issues. Some drug courts object to methadone and to buprenorphine because they are also opioids. They're very different kinds of opioids than heroin, but they are still opioids. That's been an ongoing legal struggle. And at the end of the Obama administration, Michael Botticelli, who was the White House uh, drug policy director, said that he did not think the federal government would, should fund drug courts that didn't allow people to get uh, those medications. Um, I don't know if the Trump administration has said anything about that, um, but that's one of the struggles, just to make sure, given that we have these good medications and they, you know, it's not that they work for everybody, but they, they do help a lot of people. They ought to be available trying to get the legal system to consistently allow patients to be on those if that's what they need to succeed in drug court and to get on the path to recovery. When we have a complicated policy problem like the opiate epidemic, where you could stop the the chain that leads to an opioid death at many different points, at the point of importation, at the point of prescription, at the point of addiction, um, or even intervening after one has uh, become addicted, it, it becomes a, a challenge for our different legal institutions, um, courts or regulatory agencies. And so Part of this podcast is trying to figure out which institutions within our society are best capable of addressing the opioid crisis. In this podcast, we've talked about the courts and prosecutors and the criminal justice system. When LaSalle and Humphreys criticize those institutions, they're criticizing them in contrast to other alternatives. You're right. And some of these alternatives 
include much broader responses than I think we've been talking about on this show. What's become clear from talking to Humphreys and LaSalle is that no single regulatory lever appears to be enough to really fight back this crisis. It, in many ways, requires a very holistic and complex response given the extreme complexity of the problem. Regulatory structure, I think, is incredibly, incredibly important. You know, there's some programs now around telemedicine and telehealth, also these kind of unique hub and spoke models where you're trying to work within the current system where you have the methadone clinic as kind of the hub, but then you have all these various spokes, which might be a medical clinic or a housing authority, um, where then you get care at these other areas as well. But really, we we need an overhaul of that system. With respect to harm reduction, there's a lot of proven interventions, drug checking, syringe access, immunity-based naloxone. It's kind of a myth that, you know, everyone has access to naloxone in many states. It's only through law enforcement, um, which, as I mentioned, the context of fentanyl is, uh, is almost pointless because by the time law enforcement arrives, people have already died. Community-based naloxone is still totally lacking, and that means being able to access it directly in your community, whether that's at a syringe exchange or a medical clinic or in the emergency room. You would be amazed, like, how many people go to an emergency room for an overdose? Having one overdose is the biggest predictor of having a fatal overdose, and people leave that emergency room with nothing, like no referrals to treatment, no naloxone. So we're just missing, like, huge critical intervention points, ERs, um, jails, prisons. PDMPs, prescription monitoring, drug databases is like a perfect intervention point. It's where the doctor is looking and says, oh, you know what? You've tried to fill that prescription for Vicodin five times in the last two weeks. I think that you might have a substance use disorder. But instead of using it as a health intervention and saying, let me induct you onto buprenorphine um, and see if that's a treatment that works for you, or let me give you a prescription for naloxone, they just simply cut off their supply. So I think when we're talking about regulatory structures or infrastructure, we have to be addressing all of these barriers, um, of which there are many, um, to these kind of evidence-based treatment and harm reduction interventions. In our next episode, we'll actually address the question of, of demand about how to remedy the problem of, of people getting, getting hooked through abusive pharmaceutical practices and, and poor medical practices. So in the next episode, I talk with Professor Gluck about civil litigation and how it's been used to address both supply and demand, actually, in the opioid market. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This episode was produced by David Sandifer and Yosef Schappel. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiLRev. Articles from the Law Review are available on the web at lawreview.uchicago.edu. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and soundcloud.com slash UshaiLRev. The Law Review is happy to announce a new blog, lawreviewblog.uchicago.edu. If you are interested in contributing to the blog, please reach out. Thanks for listening. Music was provided by bensound.com.